0: There's nothing I love more than a really generous but critical response to any argument that I put out. And Sarojini Nada is a professor at the University of the Western Cape, where she holds the NRF LMS Desmond Tutu South African Research Chair in Religion and Social Justice. And she had responded to an article of mine that I had written and which was published on Good Friday, in which essentially I argued and the God that I was raised to believe in in my Catholic upbringing, which is a God that supposedly is omniscient, omnipotent and omnibenevolent, cannot be squared with natural disasters such as the floods in KZN. Many of you were upset, some of you did not wish to engage me critically, she did, And she did so incredibly generously in a beautiful argument, which was really a set of meditations more than an argument that I think everyone should read. And if you haven't, you can find it on timeslive.co.za. A quick search, the title of her response to me was God, Grief and Good Friday, a response to CBS MacKaiser. There's a link to my article inside hers. And I think the exchange between us, in my opinion, is productive and I invited her and she generously accepted to come onto this edition of Eusebius on Times Live. There are really two aims. One is simply to speak into our conversation we had on paper or online, as the case might be, because not everyone enjoys reading, sadly. And secondly, Mm -hmm. to pursue one or two points a little bit further that you can't do for the sake of being pithy so that someone doesn't have to read a treatise when they click on an article. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're gonna hear a lot of law, politics, and ethics, how they intersect, and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know this are sellouts,
1: they put saliva on the paper.
0: Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it.
1: And then they shared that zone.
0: No, I'm not going to apologize. apologize.
1: Can I have my iPad, (laughs) please? So they stole it.
0: Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me,
0: Eusebius. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to start by asking you the most difficult question. How are you? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, it's been a, a season of 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 grief um, for me. So um, I'm not okay. Um, I think I can start by saying that um, uh, I'm not okay. I think um, the pandemic has given us permission um, from all, all quarters to say that we're not okay. Mm. Um, what that means, though, is, is, is difficult to, to put down. So I think I'll just say it as, as, as short and as uh, crisp as that. I'm, I'm, I'm not okay.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. I think you're right. And I think the greatest gift we can give ourselves as friends and to our individual selves is to give us permission to not be okay and to say that we're not okay. And to stop the social game of saying, oh, yeah, no, I'm fine. How are you? Um, mm. I think you'd have to exactly. be hermit to be okay. Because we're also implicated <laughs> in the hot mess that is our country in general. And then there's also the particularities of COVID-19 and the natural disaster that we've just experienced over the last couple of days.
1: Mm. And I think the accompanying um, devastation of that, um, one cannot underestimate. And so um, emotionally, physically, um, spiritually, I feel drained, (laughs) just completely drained, yeah.
0: Well, in that context, I want to thank you for responding to my article because you are exceptionally progressive, generous, thoughtful, academically, extremely able and excellent, in fact. And to take a break from grief and the joy of cooking and family and friends (laughs) (laughs) to write a response is very kind of you. And what I loved about the response and will rehearse the content for those who missed it. But what I liked about it more than anything else well, there are many things I liked about it. But one major thing I liked is that you were role modeling how one can be in conversation with someone you disagree with without it being intractable mm-hmm. or mm. nasty. I
1: think, yeah, yeah. Um, well, the academy teaches us to be quite polite, I think, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so That's one thing. Of being in the academy, <laughs> um, I uh, imagine those who are on the receiving end of um, uh, peer reviews of their submissions don't uh, might not agree with me about um, politeness, but at least at least we couch it in in polite language. Um, but uh, two things um, that strike me about what you said, um, Eusebius, and I might forget the second thing because that's a result of my COVID post COVID brain. So please mm, forgive me okay. if I forget the second word, But but. Um, Perhaps let me start with um, you saying, um, thank you for taking a break from your grief and your cooking. Um, I I often um, joke with friends and family that um, I, I process through cooking. And so cooking for me is uh, I, I cook when I'm happy, I cook when I'm sad. Um, but uh when I'm not cooking, they should be very worried because then they need to send help. <laughs> so so cooking is one way of of, of processing grief and and um yeah, and, and just the general state of unhappiness, I think, and not being okay that we find ourselves in um currently. But the second um, and the uh, thing that you said about taking a break from grief to write this piece, I think interesting for me is that it wasn't a taking it wasn't taking a break from the grief. I process grief. I process many of my things through writing, through mm-hmm. trying to make sense of it. And so, I have like you know um i think um, many books waiting to be to be written mm-hmm. on just in the notes section of my phone cuz immediately if you know, when I get an email um, that disturbs me, or if I read something that inspires me, um, I, I often just take to writing those thoughts down. Mm. Um, and so I was i was already on on Good Friday morning when I was sent um, your piece to read. I had already written that piece to my niece, um, mm. the piece that I reflect on um, in the article. And that wasn't meant, I mean, it was just meant for both of us. I ended up um, drawing on it for the piece mm. but writing that message to her was for me a way of processing how both she and I and and she's quite religious um, how both she and I are processing the grief of her mom and my sister mm. so it wasn't really taking a break in so much as it was channeling I think mm. if that makes I sense. I get
0: you that makes complete sense yes. what I find interesting about our conversation in the blogosphere is that interestingly enough, although you are the- theistic and I am agnostic, some people would say I'm a closet atheist, that funny enough I think some religious people will be unhappy with your response, some will be relieved that someone responded to Eusebius, <laughs> but some, some, upon reflection, may not like your response. So I want us to tease mm. out your your position. Leave mine aside. I've got mm-hmm. way too much space to give my view. I want us to meditate on yours. Um, at one point, you write the following. Raised with similar views, albeit from a different Christian tradition, I, too, reject the God of Machias' upbringing, because mm-hmm. that God... Is habitually misogynistic, racist and exclusionary. The notions of might, masculinity and militarism militarism dominate the imagination of that God. Now I think some people who like your article read it and love it deeply for good reason. I, I think some people would have retweeted the headline just thinking in anticipation of schadenfreude, yes There's a rebuttal to MacKaiser, but I think some people who bother to click on your article and read and think about a paragraph like the one that I've just read might be a little bit unhappy and think that you have emasculated their all-powerful God.
1: I'm glad if they do think that I've (laughs) (laughs) emasculated the all-powerful God. (laughs) <laughs> emasculation that's my that's my <laughs> secret power <laughs> um I, and i say that in jest but i do say i i think i mean it too i, I think a lot of my work um, my feminist um, scholarly work on religion um is about emasculating that all-powerful god um so um, and i can say a little bit more about that um but maybe if i mean if if you'd like to hear, I can give you some background about where that God of my childhood that I'm rejecting yes, yes. comes from, and and why I say I rejected. So, uh, my 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 father passed away when I was eight years old, and I grew up in the Pentecostal church. Um, since migrated away from um, from that tradition, um, find myself in. In other um, mainline traditions now, um, I'm not Anglican. Though some of my best friends are, and I, uh, but my 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 parents converted to Christianity when I was about a year old. They were Hindu. Um, mostly my mom actually. And so I'm the youngest of seven children, and all my siblings, um, are Christian and, and were raised Christian, uh, well, for the most parts of their lives. But um, sorry, I, I, digress. So getting to my, my dad, when my dad passed away, um, I, I just, I have this vivid memory of, um, being at the graveside and the arguments about whether my dad should be buried under hindu rites or, or christian rites seem to surface at the funeral at the at the graveside as they were trying to lower the the, the 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 casket um and so my memory is of um um the christian family singing the hymn in the sweet by and by and so picture me an 8 year old you know, standing there, um, watching the casket being lowered. And then halfway down, as the casket was being lowered, the mechanism stopped working. Jeez. And, and, and the Hindu family, I think at that point said something to the effect of, well, I suppose that the gods must be unhappy, you know, and so that, so they needed to then do their ritual. And then they, it, in my mind, and I imagine that my, my family, um, might recall the incident differently, but my, in my mind, this was a showdown then, because here you had the Christian singing in the sweet by and by, the hymn. And then my family, my Hindu family started singing Om Namah Shivaya. And it felt like, like a, like a, like a competition. Wow. Um, and, and it was enormously traumatizing um you know wow. as as this happened and the mechanism eventually worked and and you know it did and and who knows but it it felt like a a, a faith showdown and um and it felt like I, I struggled. On the one hand, I was a, a really raised in the Sunday school. I knew all the books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Um, I could rattle them off before I could even read. And now I was wanting to defend this. And at the same time, I felt enormously uncomfortable. But I didn't have the vocabulary to to express that discomfort. Mm-hmm. At, and I, sh- I wouldn't at the age of eight. But that discomfort so, sort of stayed with me and inspired I think, um, to a large extent, the career that I currently find myself mm. in as a scholar of, of religion. Um, sorry, that was a long story, but it's, no, sort it's of... a really
0: interesting <laughs> story because what it tells me is something really important. And that's mm-hmm. why in prefacing the link that I put up to your article on my own Facebook page, I wasn't trying to rile up Christians in saying the following. I really meant it and I meant it as something positive, that actually, your response to me is as much an engagement with me as it is an engagement with fellow Christians. Because Absolutely. you've got your own journey, biographically and intellectually, within Christianity that's different to many other Christians. And you have this Pentecostal upbringing, you've got this masculinist display of faith versus faith at your dad's funeral. Mm -hmm. And anything could have happened at that point. There could have been a collapse into atheism before you have the vocabulary. Or in your case, fast forward many years later, there's an encounter with liberation theology that allows you a different political relationship with Christianity and texture and praxis. Speak to me about how that came about and what that means plainly.
1: Hmm, plainly. <laughs> so I I think um so my journey and um was really my journey in academia and ironically so let me let me say it this way in most people when encountering a critical study of religion and i don't mean a confessional study of Theology, And in a sense, I've never really had a formal training. Um, I've never had formal training as a theologian. Um, My undergraduate degree was in English literature. um, And uh, it was really by by accident almost that I I came into the study because in um, my degree at the University of Cape Town 1995, 1996, um, uh, and in my last year of my degree, when I, um, went to see a curriculum advisor, um, they asked me, what are you, what are you going to be doing next year? And I said, well, I'm training to be a high school teacher. I'm going to have as, as my majors, English literature and African literature. And, um, I was told in 1995, Wasn't it? Yeah, 1996. Go figure. At the University of Cape Town, that African literature is not a teaching subject, (laughs) but wait for it, but biblical studies is, Mm. (laughs) and that says a lot about our history of Christian national uh, education and, and says all sorts of things. But I didn't have the money. To, to go and now find a new major. So I was, I sat there looking despondent at the curriculum advisor saying, so what can I do? You know, what must, what must I do now? I didn't do biblical studies. And then she said, but I see on your transcript that you did Hebrew and i had done hebrew out of, and this is this is again comes from my faith upbringing right i was i was i think there was always this intellectual curiosity trying to resolve the questions of my faith etc so i did hebrew as um Um, What do they call them? Electives as an elective subject, simply to try and resolve some of the questions I had about the Bible in its original languages. And so I'd done Hebrew and they said, oh, what we see, you have Hebrew. So they might let you into biblical studies because you have Hebrew. So consider doing that. And so that's how I got into Into studying biblical studies, and then of course brought my love of literature to bear on on, on sacred text, and 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 um, and then I encountered um, a feminist hermeneutics and and reading the Bible with these tools of 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 feminist theory, and and yeah, and the rest, as they say, is history. Mm-hmm. So that is that is how I came to the academic study of religion. Now usually when people come to such a critical study of religion and again i want to emphasize not confessionally because i was not in a seminary i was at a university when when people come to you know to a critical study of religion they usually leave quite their faith leave is quite bruised so you're either it's either bruised or lost right Mm. um interestingly Mm. for me neither of those two things happened um, I, I suddenly found the language, the vocabulary, the, the 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 scholarly engagement that I needed to make sense of my my faith. Now, marry that F word faith in the academy to the F word feminism, and you've got a recipe for for explosive engagement with your own faith community. So, I I do believe that a lot of my some a great deal of my family and friends who remain in the tradition just think I'm demon possessed, or, or, or you know, but don't, don't really value the kinds of, of beliefs um, that I hold. But I found I found ways of making sense of it through, um, through my intellectual journey, if that makes sense.
0: It totally does make sense. I mean, I suppose if I cut to the chase, there was a comment that you may have seen on my wall from a friend of mine who's a lecturer at University of the Western Cape. And I thought that his response was really interesting. And I was looking forward to to asking you what you make of his response. Because I didn't respond to your article analytically, because I think there were more important things to celebrate about your article than going into debating 101 mode. And Mm. I'm not saying that he did this because he is is also an excellent exponent of productive disagreement with people he disagrees with in philosophy, in science, and in all sorts of subjects. Um, And his name is Jacques Rousseau, but Jacques said the following, and I won't read all of it. Some of it is a bit um, technical philosophically, but I'll read enough to be true to what he had said. Um, and for us to engage. He says, Eusebius, the response, that would be your response, the response is thoughtful and respectful towards your arguments, but it is also counter to the full set of most, quote, Christian beliefs, as you might be noting, Eusebius, in labeling it progressive. God, in quotes here, becomes a placeholder for values, hopes, virtues, morals, goals, and all of that. And I've got no problem with that God, he says. But it's not the same God as most Christians seem to believe in, and also not one supported by the text, unless we go down the tortured route of reading to arrive at the meaning we prefer. The typical flavor of God is far more prescriptive than this, rather than being a version of what philosopher Dennett calls intuition pumps. And so he goes on, and he ends by saying, the version of God In her response to you is sincere and compassionate, but it, as a response, doesn't need God at all. It simply needs any deep humanistic commitment. To cherish the queer black feminist thought that you infused your response with, do you need God? Yes, (laughs)
1: Yes, <laughs> I think we, you, one needs God in that response in order to be faithful to the feminist queer, black theological response because that that those responses aren't just derived from black feminist queer theories in and of its own. They are specifically derived from black feminist queer, theologies, um, which, which, yes, draw on Black feminist queer theory to arrive at the conclusions that they they do, but those scholars themselves would not deny the, um, the God that they are wrestling with, the God that they are engaging with. And so that is a thorough reckoning and wrestling and engaging with that God and i think jacques is right to a certain extent in that not to a certain extent he's actually correct that is not the normative god that is not the normative god of christianity and that is not the normative um god of ordinary believers right that said um i also don't want to um to disregard the fact that within ordinary Ordinary. Uh, I, I can't make the air quotes on the podcast, but within <laughs> <laughs> within with, within ordinary faith communities, um, I, I don't think we can disregard that such a wrestling happens. It might seem from the public pronouncements and the popular theologies that are peddled in these ordinary faith communities that 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 such wrestling doesn't happen. But I think. If we are to look at just in South Africa alone, if we are to look at the kinds of theologies that gave rise to the liberation movement, for example, there is that kind of wrestling that's happening. And I don't think it helps us to discount that as false consciousness or just false consciousness, because to discount that as false consciousness is to not take seriously the agency and the self-determination, I think, that goes into many religious responses
0: to injustice, uh, okay. and so- I, I, I'm happy I'm to accept that. Would you agree yeah. with me, and this may be a boring concession in quotes again, that they can't see <laughs> because this is um, not video, it's only um, audio. Um, And we're having a conversation that we agreed on that. We're not having some adversarial Oxford Union debate. But you then agree with me that if we take black, queer, feminist thoughts, for example, that you can be fighting for a more just, inclusive society without commitment to any Transcendental being in your life that you have a relationship with personally or within a community embedded within some other denominational belief set. Or you can alternatively both be committed to feminist thought, radical, black radical thought, queer theories, a combination of these. And also, Black Liberation theology that has as it at its base a belief in certain kinds of metaphysical claims, including that a God exists, so that there's space mm-hmm. for many ways of being radically committed to a more just society, and that in your worldview, God is an important part of that overall belief set, but that many of your friends and your fellow comrades who are struggling against gender oppression, against the oppression of queer people, against white supremacy, Mm. do not need belief in a transcendental being. 100%
1: agreed. I I agree wholeheartedly that one may not need um, the transcendental being to... to, um, struggle against injustice i think um, though when when i think for example let's just take um um some um uh projects that i'm invited to uh participate in um projects from development organizations or you know the united nations etc who want who want to to portray a sort of a very secular commitment, right, to to the fight against injustice. Um, in the process, what happens, I think, in those struggles is that religion is not taken, when religion is not taken seriously, um, one or the faith of people are not taken seriously, one misses an opportunity to engage with social injustice in In holistic ways. So let me give you an example. So uh, a few years ago, we were involved in a project um, that worked at the intersections of sexual and reproductive health and rights and religion. And so people often would ask why, why religion? Isn't religion the biggest stumbling block? to sexual and reproductive health and and rights. I mean, think about termination of pregnancy or um, sexual diversity, et cetera. And my answer is always, that's precisely why you need to engage with a religion. Um, So as an activist um, myself, and I think I'm an activist academic, but as an activist um, academic myself, I'm interested in the ways in which, I'm interested in the study of religion sociologically, in other words, to understand how religion functions in people's lives socially, but I'm also interested in what resources might exist within religion that itself might be transformative. Mm-hmm. And so, if we think about um, James Cone, uh, to whom I referred to in in the article, he's thinking about the similarities between the cross and the lynching tree, and the ways in which you know, people who fight injustice um, are lynched in, uh, constantly and what that might mean. He's he's he, is, he, is, he I, I think about um African feminist and womenist scholars who are constantly calling our attention to the vulnerable God, the the, the you know, the God that's less than mighty. Um you know, the, these are helpful ways to think about religion, but also in terms of um transforming an unjust society gives us it gives us more, I think, authentic ways to engage with communities who hold dear to these beliefs. It's providing alternative ways about thinking. Um, about those beliefs and so it's it's not just I mean theology would be interested in what you believe right the the the, the content and the doctrine and all of that this kind of as you say progressive view of theology asks us, what difference does it make that you believe? And I'm paraphrasing um, someone um, named Bernardo. Yeah. Ozier She says, tell me not what you believe, but what difference it makes that you believe. So what are your beliefs doing in insofar as it's contributing to a more equitable and Absolutely. just society?
0: I love your brain. I can listen to you the whole day. I, I, I really love how you <laughs> write and how you speak. And you've got the humility to not even recognize your own excellence. But I'm going to restrict myself to just two or three more questions. And we can come back to more in the future if you are generous enough for another couple of conversations on this topic. Precisely because it is so central to the lives of millions of South Africans and many millions more globally. Just on this topic, sociolo- sociologically or functionally, how important religious practices and communities are, and therefore you shouldn't ignore them if you are doing justice work, whatever your personal beliefs might be metaphysically. I have to say, um, Sorajini, that I know it's anecdotal and one can play example table tennis, and to make the point permissible, I started off on social media by pointing out that of course one can be atheist and irrational, you can be atheist and be a nasty person. An but atheist and fundamentalist. Absolutely. <laughs> it's Sorry. amazing to me how many, how many putative, self-defining Christians, Muslims, Jews, slash other theistic persons respond to an article like mine with ad hominem bile, Racist responses, Mm. homophobic responses. One calling me fat, undermining my difficult work I'm doing at the gym. (laughs) And I thought to myself, and of course I've been in the game long enough, right? So it's, I've got a thick skin that comes with being in the public space, which is not to say you shouldn't listen to criticism and take it seriously, hence Mm. my being in conversation with you. But um, why does it seem like there are so many believers who are not immersed within a critical community of believing, but a mm-hmm. rote relationship with the rituals and the praxis of their faith?
1: I think a, a large part of that is... is, is. This leave your brain at the door when you go to church, mosque, temple kind of, you know, um, mentality. I think it's a, um, it's, it's, it's a refute. It- it's the ways in which religion and faith are constructed in society to be beyond critique. And so often we think that to ask questions of an almighty, all-knowing, omniscient, omnipresent God is to undermine the power and 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 um, extent. Of the the capability of that God, um, which I think is an absolute real shame, because if God is really that mighty and that powerful, I don't think God's going to be offended whether you call God He, She, They, or whether you you know you apply whether God is black or. You, uh, and so, it, it, it's it's interesting how people and believers in particular feel like they need to protect. Um that God, and I think a lot of that comes from a desire to protect that God. I think a lot of it is actually fire insurance um, the, 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 the <laughs> people are, people are shit scared of going to hell right um and and i and i and I say that um jokingly, but honestly, it really was a f- a such um, there was such an element of fear um, growing up, and it was it was such trauma in, in in the first years after my father's death. Imagining him burning in hell, literally burning in hell, because this is the kind of theology that was peddled by um, by people in my community. It's you know it's such a pity that he didn't accept Christ before he he died. And can you imagine what that does to the psyche of, you know, of a child to imagine that. And so I think it a, a part of it is that a protection instinct and part of it is a, a large part of it is fear, right? Which is where the personal confession comes from and uh, that you were speaking about in, in your article, you, you even made up <laughs> to confess. You. I That's it was true.
0: So- I saw someone, by <laughs> the way, responding on Instagram this morning, saying, "Oh my God, I had the same lies about what I what con- what I confessed to." I thought it was only people in the R that made up confessions. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, but but. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it is funny as it is, I think a large part of that is the problem of, in, in this case, I mean, it could be other religious institutions too, but in this, in your case, it's the problem of the church that refuses to address structural and social sin and instead puts all the blame on, on individual sin. And so the whole rite of confession is about me confessing what I've done in my little world and not seeing how that is part of a bigger structural and social sin which we don't really want to speak
0: about right Mm -hmm. so there's an embedded embedded part of my query Hmm. because i in preparation for our conversation my old broadcasting habits obviously don't go away with podcasting Mm -hmm. and i was trying to think when we come to this theme what is a nice way of framing the question and i i gave you the earnest version the cheeky (laughs) but seriously cheeky version is that I wanted to ask you, is religion supposed to be humorless? Because it seems like so many people are offended even by the smell of potentially mocking or being humorous when (laughs) someone is engaging their religious core set of beliefs. And I thought to myself, actually, I must ask Prof when I speak to her, is humor and religion not in the same WhatsApp group ever?
1: I have to say, the best example, I think, um, of how to bring religion and humour together is in the person of the late Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu. (laughs) He had the most beautiful way of bringing these two things together um, and t- basically telling people not to take themselves too seriously. I mean, yes. he goes down. So it, it, the, the kinds of, I mean, there's all sorts of little quips, and, and now that have become memes as well. And some of them, I, I would disagree with the kind of theology behind them. Um, but, you know, like, like one of the things he says is, um, you'd be surprised who you see in heaven. Um, God has pretty low standards, um, you know, but then the assumption being that obviously people, you know, um, who don't, uh, rebels like us, I suppose, um, uh, you know, are considered lower standards. So there, there's some problems with it, but the fact is he uses humor. Um, and I recently edited a, a, a book actually uh, just before his 90th birthday with some, some theologians, um, uh, and what was interesting in this book is almost every one of the 70 essays in the book refer in some way or the other to his humor. Mm. And so, um, and it's no wonder the apartheid government didn't like him yes. very much. Um, so I do think he provides a wonderful example of how human faith can be brought together and, and should be, um, because I really think, don't think we should be taking ourselves so seriously. And I think that's that's the problem, right? When as soon as we say, let us bow our heads and close our eyes, then everybody yeah. feels like there's there's no there's no space here for humor. So yeah. I should
0: leave it on this humorous note because it's a beautiful <laughs> note to end on. So my apologies that the last question I'm gonna ask is an earnest question that I should have asked earlier, um, and leave the humor as a beautiful note to end on. But be that as it may, precisely because you see the pull in some of the comment from someone like Jacques Rousseau on my Facebook wall that says there's a lot of deep humanism in your response to me that an atheist can sign up for while not Mm. taking on board the metaphysical claims about a transcendental being. And you recognize that as part of your own hermeneutics that, yeah, sure, that that is the case. But for you specifically, your fight for justice requires Liberation Theology, and the Theology part does as much work as the Liberation part.
1: But nevertheless,
0: I still wanted to know from you, if you were happy to recast the God that Eusebius was told existed in his Catholic primary school and strip it of the hypermasculinity. how important is truth and evidence for you about what traits God did or did not, does or does not have? And how happy are you that your God is one that you can make in the image of your feminist politics, regardless of whether or not it tracks the truth about God? Yeah. And I suppose I if, I, if I was in debating mode, <clears throat> I would ask you do you concede that you are making up a God that you can live with, but you are happy for the functional benefits?
1: A God God with benefits, who who wouldn't be keen on that kind of God? (laughs) Uh, But Eusebius, I think that um, I I would, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. But I think that in responding to reshaping that God, if we are created, I mean, if we want to be deeply theological now and, and, and talk about the ways in which God is framed in, um, in traditional Christian theology in terms of the Margot Day created in, in God's image. If we are created in God's image, that also then means that God reflects some of who, who we, we are. Surely that, that stands, um, to reason. But I think something that's been very helpful for me in, in making sense of of um of God has been um what is known in 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 theological circles circles as the wesleyan quadrilateral um so it's basically four elements um that together can can make up and support faith and interpretation and all of that and it's been quite helpful for me it's scripture tradition reason and experience and unfortunately in 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 popular religion, um, it's, it, people usually rely on, on, on one of those four things. And and unfortunately, um, it's it's usually on the first two, on scripture Mm -hmm. and tradition, Mm -hmm. and reason and experience Mm -hmm. fall by the wayside. And I find this very helpful. um, And Wesley, Mm -hmm. uh, I think the Methodists are going to be very happy that I'm invoking uh, Wesley here. But, but, you know, the the idea is that scripture can't stand on its own without understanding tradition and that tradition can't stand on its own when it's not um, in conversation with reason. And by reason, we mean the, the whole range of anthropological, philosophical, sociological, cultural, you know, meaning making tools that we have. And of course, lived experience, you cannot have a faith that doesn't take into consideration lived experience. And so I can't, i can't and i won't argue with truth claims about you know adam and eve for god's sake <laughs> or you know i because i can't and i and i won't make any attempts um to 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 engage with the the historical truths or not I, the people have done that and good for them but i can't and i don't and i'm not always sure that all the the answers they, they give us are necessarily appealing to me. Um, but I do find these four components very helpful in trying to make sense of, 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 of faith as a social justice activist um, and an academic, um, at that, uh, for me, in any case. So, yeah.
0: What a beautiful conversation. I thank <laughs> your God that she gave you such excellence. As an academic activist, thank you for coming on the programme <laughs> and thank you to Hcom for not messing up our recording. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I'm
1: um, I'm very pleased and it was a, a lovely to be here and a delightful conversation. Thanks you, Sophia.
0: Thank you.